Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 14, 2 Kings, chapters 10 and 11. Well, the book of 2 Kings spends quite a lot of time recording the deeds of Yehu, Jehu. And then the three kings who come after him, that forms his four-generation dynasty. And, and the reason for this is that Jehu's reign, and I think his divine destiny, was to lead the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel, into national judgment. All of the Lord's efforts to turn Israel away from their unfaithfulness and their wickedness were rebuffed or ignored by the people and by the leadership. And so, as Jehovah eventually does, he stops trying and he turns the page from warning to wrath. But Jehu's anointing as king of Israel was also to help set into motion the serious decline of the southern kingdom of Judah, who, because of intermarriage between Jezebel's daughter Athaliah to Jehoram, king of Judah, so thoroughly infected Judah with the wickedness of idolatry from which they could never seem to recover. Now, not unlike some cancer patients who become ill and then have cyclical remissions that, that give a welcome relief from the specter of that disease, the cancer often returns and in time again takes up its insidiousness with a vengeance. Such would be the case for Judah. The cancer of Baal worship and, and other idolatries had become so deeply implanted right down to the cellular level within the minds and the culture of the people and of the leadership of Judah that despite often heroic efforts by a few at least of Judah's kings and high priests it was a losing battle and thus it was only a matter of time before the people relapsed and God's patience ended now, thus, although the outcomes would be the same for Israel and Judah, which is exile from the land, the timetables would be different. Israel would depart first, and then Judah would follow around 130 years later. Now, as we concluded our previous lesson, we found King Yehu enthusiastically, if not merrily, dashing about all over Israel to carry out his divinely ordained commission to destroy the house of Ahav that had been ruling his, this northern kingdom since Omri took over. Now since the books of Kings and Chronicles are primarily historical in nature and it's critically important history for God's followers to know and to understand let me note for you that the Bible can be a little bit confusing when referring to this particular dynasty because it is alternately called the house of Ahav and the house of Omri. And the reason for this dual designation is that Omri was Ahav's father 
And although Omri was a wicked king, it was nothing compared to the depths of evil perpetrated by his son Ahav, Ahab, in, in most Bibles. And the reason for this amazing fall off the slope of somewhat evil that was personified in Omri into this valley of horribly evil personified by Ahab was that Ahab married Jezebel. And the thing to grasp is that Jezebel was a fervent Baal worshiper who was not a Hebrew. She was the daughter of the king of Sidon. And she determined to establish Baal as Israel's national god. And although most of Israel's earlier kings had also married foreigners, those foreign wives usually just formed a large harem that had no visible role, almost no influence in the governing of the, the Hebrew people. Rather, these women were but the customary signs of a peace treaty having been instituted between the government of Israel and whatever kingdom these women were from. They were always the daughters of that kingdom's king. But Jezebel was different. She was powerful. She was at least as visible as her husband, Ahav. And from the several stories we've read about this royal couple, it's obvious that she was the real energy and force behind the throne. She could outmaneuver her childish husband with ease. She would override his decrees, and then she'd fix whatever he botched or he couldn't face. Now her daughter, Athaliah, was a chip off the old block. But without the regal manner and cunning of her queen mother. Now Athaliah married the then king of Judah, Yehoram, and with her mother as a role model, Athaliah also played a powerful and visible role in the governing of Judah. There went the neighborhood. <laughs> Judah was now looking an awful lot like the northern kingdom. And this is where we pick up our story today in 2 Kings 10. So open your Bibles to 2 Kings 10, which is page 412 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 2 Kings 10, and we're going to take up at verse 12. Then he set out and went to Shomron, Samaria. And on the way he reached a shearing shed for shepherds, and when he encountered relatives of Ahijah, king of Judah, he asked, Who are you? We are relatives of Ahaziah, they answered, and we're going down to pay our respects to the families of the king and the queen mother. Take them alive, said Yehu. They took them alive, 42 men, and slaughtered them, and threw them into the shearing sheep's pit. He spared not one of them. And on leaving there, he happened upon Yehonadav, the son of Rechav, coming towards him. And he greeted him and said to him, Are you wholeheartedly with me as I am with you? Yes, said Yehonadav. If so, give me your hand. He gave him his hand, and Yehu took him up into the chariot. And he said, Come with me. I want you to see how zealous I am for Adonai. So they had him ride in his chariot. 
And on arriving in Shomron, he put to death everyone that Ahab still had in Shomron until he destroyed him, in keeping with the word of Adonai, which he had spoken to Eliel, Elijah. And next, Yehoshua assembled all the people and said to them, Ahav served Baal in limited measure, but Yehu will serve him with full zeal. Therefore, summon all the prophets of Baal to me, all of his worshippers, all of his priests. None of them is to be missing because I am going to offer a great sacrifice to Baal. Whoever is missing will not remain alive. But Yehu was setting a trap in order to destroy the worshippers of Baal. And Yeho said, Proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal, and they did so. Yeho sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not one man left that didn't come. And they entered the temple of Baal, and the temple of Baal was filled from one end to the other. And to the man in charge of the wardrobe, he said, Bring out robes for all the worshippers of Baal. And he brought them clothes. Yehu and Yohanadab, the son of Rechav, entered the house of Baal and said to the worshippers of Baal, Search to see that none of the servants of Adonai is here with you, only worshippers of Baal. And then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. But Yehu had chosen 80 men to remain outside. And he said, If any of the men I'm about to put in your hands escapes, it's going to be your life for his and as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, Yehu said to the guards and officers, Go in and kill them. Don't let one of them get out. So they killed them with the sword. And then after the guards and officers had thrown their bodies outside, that he went into the temple after uh, went into the temple of Baal's inner shrine. They brought out the pillars of the temple of Baal and burned them. And finally they broke down Baal's standing stone and demolished the temple of Baal, converting it into a latrine, which it still is today. Thus Yeo rid Israel of Baal. However, Yeo did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, Jeroboam, the son of Nevat with which he had led Israel into sin, the gold calves that were in Bethel and Dan. And Adonai said to Yehu, Because you did well in accomplishing what is right from my perspective, and have done to the house of Ahav everything that was in my heart, your descendants down to the fourth generation will sit on the throne of Israel. But Yehu made no effort to live wholeheartedly according to the Torah of Adonai, the God of Israel, and did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam with which he had led Israel into sin. It was during that period that Adonai began to dismember Israel. Hazael attacked them throughout the territory of Israel, east of the Jordan. All the land of Gilead, the Gadites, the Reubenites, the Manashi, from the Aroer by the Arnon River, including Gilad and Bashan. Other activities of Yeho and all of his accomplishments, all of his power, are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Yeho slept with his ancestors and they buried him in Shomron. Then Yehochaz, his son, became king in his place and Yeho ruled over Israel and Shomron for 28 years. <clears throat> Jehu was on his way to the capital city of Samaria when by serendipity he stumbled upon some hapless nephews of Ahaz, the recently killed king of Judah. However, these 42 nephews didn't know that Ahaz was dead. And they particularly had no idea that it was Jehu who had killed their uncle, the king. 
Well, the bottom line is that King Yehu, being a military man, wasn't about to let this opportunity go to waste, so he captured them and had them all executed. But why, if Yehu's divine commission was to destroy the dynasty of King Ahab, who was the king of Israel, did he find it necessary to kill a bunch of nephews of the king of Judah? Because the king of Judah and the king of Israel were blood-related. The king of Judah was Athaliah's son. So indeed, the house of Ahab, remember it's also at times referred to as the dynasty or house of Omri, extended now into Judah's monarchy, and killing these nephews of Ahaz was thus completely warranted, well within God's intent. Jehu had committed no sin in doing this. And as King Yehu resumed his journey to Samaria, after encountering these 42 men, we read in verse 15 that he had another serendipitous meeting, this time with a fellow named Jehonadab. Jehonadab. All right, in most English Bibles. Well, Jehonadab is further identified as being the son of Rakav. Now, the king is thrilled to have run into him and obviously knows this man very well. And he immediately offers him great respect, great honor, for the purpose of wanting to ensure Jehonadab's allegiance and his goodwill. And the king goes so far as to ask Jehonadab to accompany him on the remainder of his journey to Shomron, Samaria, so that the king can prove to Jehonadab his loyalty to Jehovah, God of Israel. And his zealous desire to rid the land of Baal worship and reinstitute the rituals and worship of Jehovah as the northern kingdom's national religion. And in a rare show of brotherhood, demonstrating the great political need that Jehu saw in having Jehonadah firmly in his camp, he offers this man to ride next to him on the royal chariot. Now, such a demonstration was readily understood by all who saw the procession pass by. The king was putting Yehonadab on the level of a close and valuable friend and ally. Now, we're going to pause here a while. Take one of our occasional Torah class detours to search out this mysterious fellow, Yehonadab, because who he is... And what his heritage is, is not only fascinating, it will help to explain some later biblical mentions of him and of his tribal affiliations. So, let's begin by turning to the book of Jeremiah. Open your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 35. Jeremiah 35. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 607. 607. We're going to read the whole chapter. Chapter 35 of Yirmeal, as it is in Hebrew. This word came to Yirmeal, 
from Adonai during the time of Jehoiakim, the son of Yoshiao, king of Judah. Go to the Rechavim and speak to them and bring them to uh, one of the rooms in the house of Adonai and give them some wine to drink. So I took uh, Yaazanah, the son of Yermayu, the son of Havatzinah, and his brothers and all of his sons and all of the Rechavim, the Rechabites, and took them into the house of Adonai to the room of the sons of Hanan, the son of Yigdelau, a man of God. And it was by the room of the officials, which was above the room of Maaseiah, the son of Shalom, the gatekeeper. And there I sat in front of the members of the clan of the Rechabites, uh, pitchers full of wine and cups, and said to them, drink some wine. But they said, we will not drink any wine, because Yehonadav, the son of Rechab, our ancestor, gave us this order. You are not to drink wine. Neither you or your descendants forever. Also, you are not to build houses or sow seed or plant or own vineyards. Rather, you are always uh, to live in tents so that you may live a long time in the land in which you are not citizens. We have heeded the words of Yonadav, the son of Rechav, our ancestor, in all that he instructed us to do, not to drink wine as long as we live. We, our wives, our sons, our daughters, not to build houses for ourselves to live in, not to have vineyards, fields, or seeds. We have lived in tents, and we have heeded Yonadav, our ancestor, and done everything he ordered us to do. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, came up to attack the land, we said, Come! Let's go up to Jerusalem because we were afraid of the army of the Kastim, the Chaldeans, and the army of Aram, and hence we are living in Jerusalem. Well, then the word of Adonai came to Yermeal. Adonai Zevaot, the God of Israel, says to go to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say, Won't you ever learn to listen to my words? says Adonai. The words of Yehonadab the son of Rechab, which he ordered his offspring not to drink wine, are obeyed. So to this day they don't drink any, because they heed their ancestors' order. But I've spoken to you, spoken frequently, and you've not listened to me. I have also sent you all of my servants, the prophets, sent them frequently with the message, every one of you should turn back now from his evil way, improve your actions, not follow other gods in order to serve them. Then you will live in the land I gave you and your ancestors, but you've not paid attention or listened to me. Because the descendants of Yehonadav, the son of Rechab, have obeyed the order of their ancestor, which he ordered them, but this people has not listened to me. Therefore, here is what Adonai uh, Eloi Zebot, the God of Israel, says. I will inflict on Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster I have decreed against them because I have spoken to them, but they have not listened. And I, will call out, I have called out to them, but they have not answered. Then to the clan of the Rechavim, Jeremiah said, Here is what Adonai Zebaoth, the God of Israel, says, Because you have, eated, uh, have heeded the order of Yehonadab, your ancestor, and observed all his commands and done what he ordered you to do. Therefore, Adonai Zebaoth, the God of Israel, says this, Yehonadab, the son of Rechav, will never lack a descendant to stand before me.
first of all, who's Jeremiah? Jeremiah is a prophet that God raised up during the time of King Josiah of Judah. So that's about 200 years after the time that we're studying about in 2 Kings chapter 10. Yermial, his, his Hebrew name, was born in about 650 B.C. And, and this is significant because it means that almost three quarters of a century has passed since God exiled the northern kingdom of Ephraim, Israel, and scattered them all throughout the vast Asian continent. By the time he matures and begins to prophesy, about a hundred years has passed since the kingdom of Israel has become dispersed. So whatever he speaks, it's either about what happened to Israel, past tense, and what will happen to these northern ten tribes in the future, or it's about what's going to happen to Judah in just a few decades. The punchline regarding this same Yehonadav that Jehu encounters in Jeremiah verses 18 and 19 and Jeremiah speaks about the Lord God giving great merit to the Rechavim or in English the Rechabites and this is because it is said of what Yehonadav did this of course begs the question what did Jehonadab do? But a second question is, who's the Rechabites? Well, we find a partial answer to that question in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, which is essentially just a long and detailed genealogy of Israel. In the final verse of that chapter, we read this. The families of scribes that lived in Yabetz, the Tiratim, the Shematim, the Sukatim, these are the Kinim who come from Hamat, father of the house of Rechav. So, from 2 Kings 10, we know that Yehonadab's father was Rechav. From 1 Chronicles, we now find out that a fellow named Hamat was Rechav's father, Jehonadab's grandfather, and that his tribe or clan is called the Kinim. The English for the Kinim is the Kenites. But who are the Kenites? Well, the Kenites are the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Yitro, Jethro. The great Bible heroine, Jael, who drove that tent peg through the head of Sisra, and a military, an enemy military general during the era of the judges, she was also a Kenite, which explains why she did such a thing. So as to what Yehonadav did that was considered so righteous by God, we mainly get this statement from Jeremiah 35.14 where it says, The words of Yehonadav, the son of Rechav, which he ordered his offspring not to drink wine are obeyed, so to this day they don't drink any because they heed their ancestors' order, but I've spoken to you, spoken frequently, you've not listened to me. What's so righteous about not drinking wine, since drinking wine was completely permitted by Yehovah, and even required as part of the many Levitical rituals? Well, essentially, <clears throat> Jehonadab led the Rechabites into taking on a vow that was part of the Nazarite vows of purity. But there was more. 
We find out in other historical documents and scattered Bible passages that the Rechabites gave up the typical ways of settled life and they became nomad-like. And the reasons for this are that Yehonadav and his clan, the Rechabites, were trying to emulate the ways of the ancient Israelites as led by Moses out in the wilderness. They were trying to go back in time and to recapture the pure and the simpler ways of Torah life. They saw how the Hebrews became polluted by the ways of the Canaanites in no time after entering the Promised Land. And they wanted to separate themselves from it so that they didn't become infected. And they felt that the first step was to not live in the cities and the villages with the Hebrews, but rather to live in tents emulating Moses out in the wilderness, nearby the Israelites, but separately. All that said, because of their ancient relationship to Moses through his father-in-law Jethro, they had firmly embraced Jehovah worship, they had followed the Torah, they were intensely attached to the nation and people of Israel, and they remained staunch allies even though they had decided to live apart. And once again, the Lord thought to regularly commend them for it and use them as good examples of behavior and of faithfulness. Now, I brought you here not just for the historical realities of the Rechabites who play a role in numerous places throughout Israel's history. In fact, even after Judah's return from Babylon, we find in the book of Nehemiah, the Rechabites helped to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But I also brought you here because they ought to be a first-class example for Christians to follow. Especially in regards to our relationship with Israel. See, we ought to recognize that for, well, at least Gentile followers of Yeshua, we're not called to be part of national Israel. But yet, in a deeper level of spiritual heritage connection, we are intensely attached to Israel, the nation and the people. And we are not called to take on the traditional Judaism of Israel. But yet, we are called on to take on the pure Torah principles of Israel. And like the Rechabites, we can rightly choose to live apart from national Israel, but yet stand with, stand next to Israel. We can recognize that those Hebrews who still reject Messiah Yeshua are not living as God wants them to. So we live a different and hopefully better way. Nonetheless, we are obligated to love Israel, comfort Israel, honor Israel, be devoted to Israel's well-being, and consider Israel in the same manner as did the Rechabites. And when we do, when we do that, 
we receive the same sort of merit from God as did Jehonadav and his people. Well, back to 2 Kings 10. Verse 17 explains that upon arriving in Samaria, Jehu killed all the remaining descendants of the house of Ahab that he could find. And the scriptures remind us that this was all in accord with the Lord's demand upon Jehu as a condition of his becoming a king. And once it seemed that he had completed that assignment, he then turned his attention back to the matter of the Baal cult. And he did this in his usual clever manner, by setting a trap for the Baal worshippers. Now, like King David, since Yehu was a military leader at heart, and had himself served in that capacity for many years, he had no interest in callously wasting the lives of his soldiers to accomplish his goals, unlike many of Israel's kings before him. So he lied, and he deceived the Baal worshippers into thinking that he was an enthusiastic supporter. In fact, as much as Ahab had worshipped Baal, Jehu said he'd love Baal even more. So Jehu told the Baal worshippers that there was to be this glorious gathering of all the Baal followers in the land, from the layman to the priests, and that this convocation was so important personally to Jehu that any Baal worshipper who didn't come was going to get killed. See, these wouldn't be merely the Baal worshippers who resided in Samaria, but rather all of them who lived anywhere in his kingdom. The ruse worked, and every known Baal worshipper obeyed their new king and came. Well, verse 22 says that a special robe was given to each worshipper. It was a rather standard thing to do among the Babylon mystery religions for the worshippers to wear special robes that were owned by the Baal temple authority and the robes were stored there and when followers came to the temple to worship and sacrifice then they were handed out however Jehu took no chances he made it a royal decree that every Baal worshipper who came was to receive a robe to wear well, no doubt the Baal priests were greatly excited at the opportunity to see so many robed adherents, adherents gathered at a great gala in one place. But Jehu had some different ideas. Because no follower of the God of Israel would ever don a Hebrew ritual robe that was reserved for the priesthood, let alone wear a Baal robe, then it'd be easy to separate the Baal followers from the Yehovah followers. Verse 23 once again brings Yehonadav into the picture as he was still being shuttled around as a VIP so that he would be impressed by Yehu's dedication to wiping out the heathen rivals of Yehovah. And as the worshippers of Baal began to jam into the Baal shrine, Yehu ordered that no followers of the Lord were allowed to enter. Again, to the Baal people, this felt like they were being given special preference. But it was actually for a lot more deadly purpose. And once all the Baal followers were inside and the burnt offerings began, the trap was sprung. 
80 of Yehu's soldiers were stationed at the entrance to the temple. And they were given the orders to go inside and kill every last Baal worshiper, priest, and prophet. And to ensure that this was the end of Baal worship in Samaria and it would not be revived, the temple, all of its furnishings, idols, symbols, implements, they were destroyed too. But even demolishing the place wasn't enough for this new king. He turned the place into a public toilet. And such an action would surely please all followers of Yehovah and prove once and for all that Jehu worshipped only the God of Israel. Unfortunately, even though King Jehu had indeed scrupulously followed through with his assignment to rid the land of Baal worship, this did not result in repentance towards God. Thus, the proper service of Jehovah didn't return to Israel. Rather, we're told that essentially all King Jehu did was to return Israel to the golden calf cult instituted by Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom after the civil war that had split Israel into two separate kingdoms. Recall that Jeroboam was jealous and he didn't want his subjects journeying from his kingdom up to Jerusalem to worship at Solomon's temple under the authority of the Levitical priesthood there since this was in the kingdom of Judah. He was afraid that if that practice continued, his own authority would be undermined. So, essentially, his purpose in building the golden calf shrines was not religious. It was political. Once the calves were built, he forbade the people of the ten northern tribes to travel to Jerusalem and instead he had the two golden calf idols installed with one of them in Beit El which was at the southern end of his kingdom and the other at Dan which was at the northernmost end of his kingdom with the explanation well this would make things so much more convenient for his Israelite people to go and worship and sacrifice now interestingly the Bible does not paint this activity as nearly as wicked as Baal worship. And this is because the golden calves were meant to be seen as representations of Yehovah, not as different gods. So in other words, the sin of Jeroboam technically wasn't idolatry, at least as defined in that era. Rather the sin was that he had a graven image of God, of, is, of the God of Israel, manufactured, and that violated the second commandment. Yet King Yehu was well aware that all of the recent prophets, Elijah and Eliyahu, uh, uh, and rather in uh, Elisha included, well, they had denounced these golden calves as an affront to God, and that Jeroboam had been condemned because of it. Jehu did it anyway. So he fell into serious sin almost immediately after being so stringently obedient. Now ironically, immediately after we're told of Jehu's serious sin concerning this reinstitution of Jeroboam's calf worship, verse 30 has the Lord commending him for wiping out 
the family of Achav for divine instruction. The rabbis have an interesting take on this. It is that this is an illustration of the principle that God does not withhold rewards because of sin. A person is rewarded for good deeds and punished for his bad deeds. But one doesn't cancel the other out. And while I might add some caveats and nuances to that doctrine, in general, I think that principle is correct. And it's backed up by the Old and New Testament writings. Good behavior is certainly not a means to salvation. But it is expected afterwards. And after salvation, bad behavior may cause us to be disciplined or punished. We don't have our salvation revoked as a result. Further, whether it is here on this earth and in this life, or later on in eternity, there are definitely rewards for God's followers for our good deeds, provided one defines good deeds as meaning doing the Lord's will according to His laws and principles and commandments. Thus the Lord tangibly rewards Jehu with a promise of a dynasty for his faithfulness in destroying the house of Ahav and Baal worship. However, due to his sin, that dynasty is going to be limited to but four generations. There's an underlying reason why four is the number of generations chosen to give Yehu. Why not three? Why not five? Why not six? The reason is exposed in a God pattern. The dynasty of Ahav that Jehu had immediately destroyed had consisted of four generations. It started with Omri, passed to Ahav, then to Yehoram and Ahaziah. Thus we see a vivid illustration of God's character to give rewards measure for measure and to give curses measure for measure. And that is why God gave Moses the commandment and principle of lex talionis, an eye for an eye. Proportional justice, meted out measure for measure. That's how God operates. So, mankind should mimic that. Now, I'm not sure I can find the words to properly characterize the devastating statement that is the opening statement of verse 32. The complete Jewish Bible says that it was during those days, meaning beginning with the reign of Yehu and then the three generations of his family that would follow him, it was during that time that the Lord began to dismember Israel, referring only to the northern kingdom. The Hebrew word is katsah, and most literally, it means to cut off or cut away. So the complete Jewish Bible translation gives us the best sense of its meaning, I think, by saying dismembered. Two things were going to happen. 
First, Israel itself would be dismembered. Several of the ten tribes would, over about a two-decade period, be taken out of the land, sent to populate other areas of the vast Assyrian Empire. The last of them would be exiled about 722 BC. Second, the northern kingdom would be dismembered in the sense of being removed from the inheritance of the promised land. Only Judah would remain. The northern kingdom ceased to exist in any form. And instead the land became a national province of Assyria who repopulated the place with many races of foreign people from various other conquered kingdoms and nations. It would essentially remain in that condition until the end of World War II. Thus we're told that Hazael began to attack Israel all along its borders and the king of Aram especially focused on the Transjordan Israelite territories that belonged to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. Now recall that just as God had ordered the anointing of Jehu as king of Israel, he had also ordered the anointing of Hazael as king of Aram. In the last couple of chapters, we now find out that the Lord's purpose for these appointments was a negative one. These two men were to help lead Israel into destruction. One internally, by further destroying Israel's national character, and one externally, by attacking Israel's national territory. Thus, this chapter ends with the death of Jehu, presumably after a full lifespan, when after ruling for 28 years, his son Jehoiachaz took over the throne as God promised would happen. Let's get a little bit into chapter 11 before we leave today. Second Kings chapter 11, page 414 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're going to read it all and just talk about it for about a minute. When Athaliah, the mother of Akajah saw that her son was dead, she set about destroying the entire royal family. But Yehoshiva, the daughter of King Yoram, sister of Ahaz, took Joash, the son of Akajah, and stole him away from among the princes who were being slaughtered. She took him and his nurse, sequestered them in a bedroom, and hid them from Athaliah so that he wasn't killed. He remained hidden with his nurse in the house of Adonai for six years, and during this time, Athaliah ruled the land. And in the seventh year, Yehoiada summoned the captains of hundred-man platoons of both the Kari and the guard, and he brought them into the house of Adonai and made an agreement with them and had them swear to it in the house of Adonai. And then he showed them the king's son and gave them this instruction. Here's what you're to do. Of you who come on duty on Shabbat, a third guards the royal palace, a third is at the sewer gate, and a third is at the gate behind the guards. The, th the first third is to continue guarding the palace and serve as a barrier. While the other two groups are you who come on duty on Shabbat, you will guard the house of Adonai where the king is. 
You are to surround the king, each man with his weapons in his hands, and anyone who penetrates the ranks is to be killed. Stay with the king whenever he leaves or enters. The captains over hundreds did exactly as Jehoiada, the, the Kohen, meaning the high priest, ordered. Each took his men, those coming on duty on Shabbat, those going off duty on Shabbat, and they came to Jehoiada, uh, the Kohen, and the Kohen issued to the captains of the hundreds the spears and the shields that had been King David's and were kept in the house of Adonai. The guards then took positions, each man with his weapons in his hand, from the right side of the house to the left side of the house, alongside the altar, alongside the exterior of the house, and all around the king. And then he brought out the king's son, crowned him, gave him a copy of the testimony, and thus made him king. They anointed him, clapped their hands, and shouted, Long live the king! Well, when Athaliah heard the shouting of the guard and the people, she entered the house of Adonai where the people were and looked and saw the king standing there on the platform in keeping with the rule with the leaders and the trumpeters next to the king. And all the people of the land were celebrating and blowing trumpets. And at this, Athaliah tore her clothes and cried out, Treason! Treason! Jehoiada the Kohen ordered the captains of hundreds, the army officers, escort her out past the ranks, but anyone who follows her kill with the sword. For the priest had said, she must not be put to death in the house of Adonai. So they took her by force and led her through the horse's entry to the royal palace. There she was put to death. Jehoiada made a covenant between Adonai, the king, and the people that they would be Adonai's people and a covenant between the king and the people. And all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and broke it down. And they completely smashed its altars and images and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, in front of the altars. And next, the Kohen appointed officers over the house of Adonai. And he took the captains of hundreds, the Kari, the guards, all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of Adonai, going by way of the gate of the guards to the royal palace. There he sat on the throne of the kings, and all the people of the land celebrated, and at last, the city was quiet. That is how they killed Athaliah with the sword at the royal palace. The first words of this chapter sets us back on our heels a little bit. Here we're told that when King Akazah of Judah was killed, his mother, Athaliah, Jezebel's daughter, set about killing the remainder of the royal family of which she herself was part. And the reason was simple. She was merely emulating what her deceased husband, Yehoram, had done immediately upon his coronation. He ruthlessly had all of his full and half-brothers executed. Athaliah had her eyes squarely on the throne of Judah. And so rather than allow one of her son Akaziah's children to ascend as the new king, she killed every last member of her own family, including her flesh and blood, blood grandchildren, so that she would have no rival and no opposition. Now, although her bloodthirsty methods were evil and cold beyond the pale, she was actually but a tool in God's hands to further annihilate the dynasty of Ahav, especially that part of it that had managed to metastasize into Judah. 
The reality, however, is she had no right to the throne of the southern kingdom. She was a woman and she was not of the tribe of Judah. Recall also that for Judah, the only family that God gave the right to rule was David's line. Athaliah was quite aware of this. So her goal was to wipe out whatever remained of David's descendants to clear a path for herself. Let us remember that even though Akazia's biological mother was Athaliah, his father was Yehoram, who was a descendant of David. In this era, especially as concerned royalty, one's lineage was generally determined by one's father, not one's mother, as it is among the Jews today. However, in her murder spree, she missed one. The Lord used a woman named Yehosheva, a sister of the deceased king Akajah to hide and care for an infant son of Akajah in hopes that he could one day take the throne of Judah. The infant's name was Joash. And we're going to continue next time to see how he managed to survive and become king in the next following weeks. Okay.